From PRX, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. On this Earth Day in the climate crisis, we are looking forward to how the world is reimagining a greener economy. The care economy is largely a green economy. It's largely a low-carbon set of industries, interestingly, predominantly held by women and and women of color. Also, the value solution to the climate crisis. We have to save ourselves from this existential crisis by changing fundamentally the way we live, how we relate to one another, and how we relate to the rest of life. The ecological crisis is not a crisis of the birds and the bees or the trees and the toads. It's a crisis of how we live as spiritual beings in a physical reality. That's this week on Living on Earth. Stick around. From PRX and the Jennifer and Ted Stanley Studios at the University of Massachusetts, Boston, this is Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Earth Day 2021 marks an important milestone for Living on Earth. In April of 1991, Living on Earth started broadcasting weekly on public radio, and for these past 30 years, we've been hitting the airways ever since. Biologist and Woods Hole Research Center founder George Woodwell helped inspire me to start this show when he told me that global warming from burning fossil fuels in forests would likely melt the Arctic. He explained that as the permafrost released its CO2 and methane, those added greenhouse gases would cause more warming and melt the Arctic even more, which would add yet more carbon to the atmosphere. At some point, these self-reinforcing reactions, this feedback loop, would be beyond human control. As a journalist, it seemed to me that if what George described was allowed to get out of hand, little else would matter for society. So I decided that climate change and so many other environmental stories needed reporting. And here we are. Now, many things have changed since 1991, and science has made some amazing advances. The human genome was sequenced, and gene therapy began. The Hubble telescope gave us fantastic views of deep space. Technology gave us the World Wide Web, which made e-commerce, Google, and Facebook possible. And the invention of the smartphone put the world in our pocket. And in politics and society, South Africa ended apartheid and freed Mandela, and the U.S. elected its first president of direct African descent, Barack Obama. But the numbers show we are still failing to preserve the climate. Over the last 30 years, human-caused emissions have increased by 60%. Today, the atmosphere holds the equivalent of about 500 parts per million of CO2. That is not good news. We began the Industrial Age in 1760 with concentrations of CO2 at about half those levels, and we are now living through the hottest decade in modern human history. As a result, we are seeing record-breaking heat waves and wildfires from California to Siberia, floods, rising sea levels, and shrinking Arctic sea ice. Not to mention record-breaking Atlantic hurricane seasons, searing droughts, and massive tornado clusters. And all this climate disruption is a result of just a single degree centigrade rise in average Earth's surface temperatures since the beginning of the Industrial Revolution. But our broadcast today is not simply a look back or a lament. We are also looking ahead to shine a light on some possibilities to head off climate disruption before civilization as we know it becomes untenable. We will consider the possibilities of economics, politics, applied science, and technology to address climate disruption though so far they have fallen short. So we will look to see what they may be missing. And since we humans have caused the climate emergency, we'll also consider how we can think differently about our place on this planet. For some clues, we'll look to some ancient wisdoms and contemporary anthropology. Correlation doesn't necessarily mean causation, but there are two striking trends that run parallel to the alarming rise in global warming gases. One is the astonishing growth of economic wealth, and in recent years, that increase in wealth in the U.S. has been confined to the very richest. In fact, most families in the U.S. have seen little or no gain, with many losing economic power, as many young adults today can't afford to buy homes like the ones they grew up in. 
The other trend is the loss of confidence in government action at the national and local levels and the failure of international rules governing climate change emissions to go beyond the honor system. The concentration of economic and political power related to those trends has historically thrived on extraction and burning of fossil resources. Climate policy critics, including Van Jones, Christina Carlson, and Bill McKibben, say that has to change if we are to halt our present march toward climate Armageddon. The first industrial revolution hurt the people and the planet, too. The next industrial revolution has to help the people and the planet. Meaningfully addressing climate requires an economic transformation in basically all corners of our economy. I think we're reaching a turning point. I think that the political power of the fossil fuel industry has begun to wane after a century or two of waxing. And our job is to accelerate that, to push hard for really rapid, rapid change. There are plenty of ideas about how to preserve a livable climate. And the conventional answer so far has been to double down on approaches that have yet to work, including unproven technology. To save us, many advocates say we need market-based solutions, such as pricing carbon and technologies such as renewable electricity from solar, wind, and other clean energy sources to power our lives. They say we just need to update the systems of the Industrial Revolution that relied on abundant fossil fuels. We had all this energy available a huge quantity that had never been available before. And that allowed just a complete revolution in the world, revolutions in transportation and manufacturing, all kinds of things that we'd just never been able to do before. Samantha Gross was a senior climate and energy official for the Obama administration. Now at the Brookings Institution, she notes that by the 20th century, oil had become the most valuable commodity on world markets. If you were to design a fuel to be used for transportation, you really couldn't do a lot better. It's very energy dense. It has a lot of energy within it for its weight and its size. It's easily transportable. It's a liquid, so it works in an internal combustion engine. It's really an excellent transportation fuel. So she calls for new technologies to power the world while avoiding more climate disruption. We absolutely need both cleaner energy and more energy. There's roughly a billion people in the world right now who don't have access to modern energy services. And so dealing with climate change while not providing those people with a better standard of living is no solution at all. When climate change first hit the headlines, the fossil fuel industry pushed back on the perceived threats to their profits. Some fossil fuel companies spent millions on disinformation campaigns to stoke climate denial. But now, as climate dangers can no longer be ignored and the world is going greener, big capital is excited about new prospects for growth. We're talking about what many would say is probably the, the largest new economic opportunity, right? Andrew Winston is a sustainability consultant for major corporations and co-author of the 2006 book Green to Gold, which became popular among Fortune 500 executives. In the past, in the 90s, 2000s, it's the Internet, it's you know, the growth of connection and mobile. Now it's the clean economy. And I, you know, I think we're talking many, many trillions of dollars of, of market in, um, you know, transportation in, in different kinds of fuels and building efficiencies and regenerative agriculture. I mean, just a whole range of things that are in multi-trillion dollar markets. So the companies that take advantage of that, just like, you know, any former kind of industrial revolution we've had, any of the major waves of change, the companies that are prepared for it uh, and, and can serve that future do very well. And the ones that don't and kind of stick to how they've done things forever disappear. But even with the advent of electric cars like the Tesla and pricing of solar power well below that of coal, the growing profits of green tech have yet to halt the climate emergency. More is needed, says Christina Carlson, program manager for the Climate and Economic Transformation Team at the Roosevelt Institute. The markets will have to be a part of this. We can't do this without private money. But focusing on those types of mechanisms alone will not get us anywhere near where we need to be in terms of mitigating climate. And it'll also further deepen the unequal, structurally racist outcomes that that system has already created. She says systemic racism has distorted government policies and spending when it comes to environmental justice and climate justice at home and abroad. All fiscal policy 
even if it seems completely unrelated to climate, will have climate implications. So it's it's really a framing argument and a sort of a policy development principle that's saying you can't ever be climate blind as you're making choices. And Christina Carlson adds that if human rights and fairness guide the conduct of governments and businesses, it would have a more positive economic impact in the long run than self-centered free market approaches. Climate is already an economic cost and an economic drag on our economy. Not only are we actually spending money to mitigate climate disaster that's happening now, but we're also seeding risk in our financial system by not dealing with the issue that we all rely on fossil fuels. You know, so we are actively paying for inaction and it as the more we put it off, the more these economic costs are going to compound over time. Some of the costs include lives lost to the burning of fossil fuels, as some 8 million people around the globe and more than 300,000 in the U.S. die each year from fossil fuel pollution, most from disadvantaged groups. Treating people as more or less disposable inputs for the economic system helped to create the climate crisis, observes activist and lawyer Colette Pynchon Battle. That we could commodify this earth, that we can commodify the river, the tree, the water, and the land. Uh, This is all rooted in a philosophy of extraction and exploitation. This is the underbelly of our great society. The flaw in this thinking, she says, is the belief that economies can infinitely expand even though we live on a finite planet with limited resources. And seeking efficiencies by cutting costs and resiliency can have inhumane results, like the millions left frozen in the dark without water during the Texas power grid disaster in February of 2021. The state failed to consider climate-related risks linked to the shifting polar vortex. If you understand what's accelerating this human-accelerated climate impact, you get to our economy, you get to capitalism, you get to extractive and exploitative practices that are rooted in a very dark past. So, looking forward to what could solve the climate crisis, some say it comes down to who has power. I think in so many ways, money and power are really the crux of the of the issue, right? That's Catherine Wilkinson, co-founder of the All We Can Save Project and editor of the breakthrough book on climate solutions, Drawdown. Money and power is so much of what has kept us stuck in the status quo. It's so much what has caused denial, delay, blockading, (laughs) um, bystanding. According to Catherine Wilkinson, money determines who has the power to either maintain the status quo or transform the system. So to make the changes needed to save ourselves from climate catastrophe, we need to think beyond dollars and cents, beyond national indicators like GDP. We've somehow seemed to have landed on GDP as like the one big needle <laughs> that we're all hearing about. You know, you, you you tune into the news and that's that's the that's the key performance indicator right, that you're going to hear about, um, about how we're doing as a society. And of course, sort of when we think about things that were laid bare by the pandemic. Well, it was, you know, the the gap between <laughs> how the markets seemed to think we were doing last year and how average people were doing last year were wildly divergent. Um, and if that sort of doesn't reveal some insanity to us, I I, <laughs> I don't know, I don't know what will. Catherine has done a lot of thinking about how to build a green economy, and to her, a lot of it requires reframing the issue. I think a lot of times our mind goes to, oh, so that means, you know, installing wind and solar power, and that means retrofitting building and building alternative transit. Um, And I think all of that is true. But I think it also means recognizing where we already have a quote-unquote green economy, but we've never seen it as such. So for example, most care jobs, right? The care economy is largely a green economy. It's largely a low-carbon set of industries, um, interestingly, predominantly held by women and, and women of color. She foresees a green economy that is built upon unity and says we're moving in the right direction. 
even as wealth inequality widens, even as concentrations of money and power in some ways are growing larger and larger in a smaller and smaller set of hands, we're seeing the collective, right, rise up in various ways as the corrective, right? <laughs> the collective as the corrective to that situation um, and the collective as the means to shift the deployment of money and power towards a just and livable future. If you like what you hear on Living on Earth, please join us with a gift of $5 or more. Just go to LOE.org and click on Donate at the top of the page. And thank you. What drives a man to dress up in a Santa suit to protest his local gas station on Christmas Eve? Why do so many people with PhDs in economics believe we can have infinite growth on a finite planet? Why are Silicon Valley CEOs pitching space colonies as the solution to energy limits? Crazy Town is the environmental podcast that tackles questions like these with equal parts humor and insight. The hosts cover everything from the climate crisis and ecological overshoot to human behavior, cultural conundrums, and political tribalism. And by the end of each episode, you'll have much better ideas for taking action than dressing in a Santa suit at the gas station. Visit Crazy Town wherever you get your podcasts. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. One of the most fascinating aspects of science is the way its knowledge base is always changing. And new discoveries can come almost, if not entirely, by accident. Indeed, so many discoveries like radioactivity and antibiotics came when researchers were looking for something else in their laboratories, and then, fortunately, had the good sense to pay attention when they got unexpected results. And some of that good sense comes from the humility of knowing that there are so many amazing things that accepted science still doesn't understand. Consider, for example, that few of us would dispute the existence of love, though hopefully all of us have experienced it. But science cannot explain precisely what love is or even the exact process that creates, shares, and enjoys love. Someday, we may be able to explain in more scientific terms what is now the mystery of love, as unromantic as that might sound, much as after millennia of observing birds flying, humans finally figured out the physics of how the birds do it so we could make wings to carry ourselves. When it comes to Earth's climate, there are still huge gaps in our knowledge of how the Earth stays neither too hot nor too cold to support life. The big unanswered questions are why and exactly how. We do understand which molecules reflect the sun's heat and which ones can trap it. But modern humans have never lived through a major shift in the climate, so we can only speculate what might happen if the Goldilocks range of temperatures we need to survive are ever knocked out of whack. Right now, we are guessing that a more than a 2 degree centigrade rise in average global surface temperatures over pre-industrial levels will literally start toasting civilization, and the climate disruption we can already see and feel comes from little more than a 1 degree rise. Our guesses come from models run on supercomputers, but among their weaknesses, they are poor at modeling clouds, and water vapor is our most prevalent greenhouse gas. But we humans do have the power to observe, and thanks to the observations of a genius named James Lovelock, there is a hypothesis that could unlock a whole systems approach to protecting the amazing life forms that have arisen on Earth. Thanks to the suggestion of a friend, James Lovelock called it the Gaia hypothesis, after the Greek goddess who symbolizes Earth. Simply put, the Gaia hypothesis says the whole Earth system acts like it is alive, and uses mechanisms that living creatures use to stay alive by constantly regulating temperature, chemical and physical inputs and outputs, and adapting through evolution. James Lovelock, 
who turned 101 in 2021, came up with his accidental discovery when NASA asked him back in the 1960s to see if his inventions could detect life on other planets by looking at their atmospheres. Venus, our nearest neighbor at 25 million miles closer to the sun than Earth, is literally a hot mess with steady surface temperatures of nearly 900 degrees Fahrenheit and an atmosphere of mostly carbon dioxide laced with bits of sulfur droplets. Not hospitable for life forms we know. Mars, 100 million miles further from the sun than Earth, is a bit less hostile to life, with days of searing heat and nights of deep cold like our moon, but also with an atmosphere that is overwhelmingly made up of carbon dioxide with just tiny traces of oxygen. His genius kicked in when he realized the bigger question was not if there was life on those other planets, but why there was life here on Earth. All three planets have histories of strong volcanoes that spew out huge amounts of carbon dioxide. Left on its own, the CO2-belching volcanoes on Earth would have led to a hothouse or desert over time. But something has kept carbon dioxide levels in a sweet spot, just four hundredths of a percent of the Earth's atmosphere, enough to keep it warm but not too warm for life, while the oxygen needed for animals is in great abundance. And that something is life itself. About a billion years after the Earth was formed, air, rocks, and microbes likely came together and photosynthesis evolved. Photosynthesis is how plants, algae, and other organisms convert sunlight into chemical energy and break down CO2 into its elements, carbon and oxygen. So, over millions of years, plants and algae sequestered in their cells all that carbon from volcanoes, and when buried in the ground or under the sea, some of it eventually became coal and oil. Four times in Earth's geologic history, giant eruptions of volcanoes belched out so much CO2 they set off mass extinctions. There was also a mass extinction linked to an asteroid strike that likely shut down a lot of photosynthesis and allowed CO2 to rise. In every case, Earth had to start sequestering carbon again as life evolved to adapt to new conditions. So when we drill and dig up fossil fuels today, we are upsetting a balance the Earth works hard to keep. But if we keep those fossil fuels in the ground, we help support the living planet and all the life we know about in the universe. Many scientists have helped advance the Gaia hypothesis over time, which now includes seeing the whole planet, including life, atmosphere, water, and rocks, as a single complex organism. Back in the 1970s, the late UMass Amherst professor Lynn Margulis co-published journal articles about Gaia with James Lovelock. Her insights about symbiotic evolution rather than brutal competition suggested some mechanisms for Gaia's self-regulation. One of the most public voices now on the Gaia hypothesis is a former student of James Lovelock, Stefan Harding. He is now a deep ecology research fellow at Schumacher College in England. In some, he says... Every living plant and animal on Earth interacts with the non-living rocks, atmosphere, and water to make the planet an independent living organism. The scientific idea is when they start interacting with each other, these four components, something extraordinary emerges out of those interactions, which you couldn't have known in advance. It's called an emergent property, it says the science, is the ability of the whole, of all four of them working together, all of them, life, atmosphere, rocks, and water, working together to keep the surface conditions on the planet suitable or within the limits that life can tolerate. So you see, life has a very important role here. Life is intimately involved in regulating the temperature, the acidity of the planet, the distribution of key elements. And so the idea suggests that the Earth is one great living organism. One living organism. And as thinking about Gaia has evolved, more credence is given to the notion that not just biologically active beings but also the so-called inanimate things like rocks and water can also support life. Observations reveal countless examples of the ways in which life in its many forms regulate the planet. Again, Stefan Harding. Well, basically, we now know that many kinds of organisms, including marine algae and forests like rainforests, they emit chemicals that seed clouds. And those clouds are dense and white, and they cool the earth. And this is happening over, over the rainforests and over parts of the oceans. So 
Just think of that. Living beings are actually helping to cool the surface of the planet. I mean, that's amazing. There's more. There's also, we're pretty sure we know how Earth has, how Gaia has regulated her temperature over geological time, despite volcanoes continually emitting carbon dioxide into the atmosphere, which of course, as we know, is a greenhouse gas, and simultaneously the sun getting brighter and brighter and brighter throughout geological time, so that now it's about 30% brighter than it was when life began, maybe 4,000 million years ago or so. So these two combined, you know, the increasing CO2 in the atmosphere and the br increasing brightness of the sun is a recipe for an absolute disaster for life. But eventually the planet would get so hot, the surface gets so hot, all the water would evaporate, boil off like in a kettle. And it's called a runaway greenhouse. That's what happened on Venus. But that didn't happen on Earth because of life, because of life interact holding the water down, capturing the hydrogen as it was trying to flee. Many of the very chemicals we take for granted for life on Earth are themselves a result of life on Earth, including the oxygen from photosynthesizing, notes Martin Ogle, a scientist and educator with Entrepreneurial Earth. If it weren't for life, that some huge number of the minerals on Earth would not exist. And um, so if you just think of oxides, for instance, as many of the minerals of Earth, that they wouldn't exist were it not for life. And by the way, a most valuable oxide is aluminum oxide in the form of the gem ruby. Gaia as a living system is complex and not fully understood. But just as we can observe and enjoy love without understanding its exact scientific mechanisms, and as we watched birds for millennia before we figured out the mechanics of flight, our observations can tell us a lot about Gaia. In fact, long before modern science emerged, traditional and aboriginal societies already saw the Earth as alive. Joe Bruchak is a Native American storyteller and tells the story of the Shinnecock tribe from Long Island. It is said that in the 17th century, a group of missionaries visited there, and uh, they gathered together a group of Native people. And assuming these people knew nothing about God or creation but had very unsophisticated ideas, they said, we wish to teach you about God, but do you have any idea of God or, or of the creation? And uh, the people said, oh, yes, we do, and let us show you. And they drew a circle on the ground in the earth. Then they drew a very small circle in the center of that. And they said, this is the eye of creation. And we human beings are that small dot in the middle, surrounded by all of creation, by the great mystery. We are always in the eye of the creation. We're always seen by the great mystery. <laughs> and the uh, missionaries didn't quite know what to say in response to that. Today, some people dismiss the Gaia hypothesis and the role of rocks and water in life as a pseudo-intellectual exercise to put a more acceptable face on animism beliefs of aboriginal societies. But even a child in modern America can feel and express a deep connection to the earth in ways many of us lose or feel awkward talking about as adults. Living on Earth's Bobby Bascom recently read Mark Majewski's book for children, Does Earth Feel?, with some children in her life. The book poses 14 simple but profound questions for anyone to consider, including, does the Earth feel? Yes. yes. Does Earth feel curious? Yeah, it's curious because there's lots of fluttering animals like butterflies. Yeah. And then the question here is, does the Earth feel hurt? Yes. Yes. Why? People aren't being as nice to it. What do they do that's not nice? They chop down trees and shoot animals for fun. Because people put oil in the water. How do you think that hurts the earth? Because it hurts animals in the earth. Do you think when the animals are hurt, the whole earth feels hurt? Yes. Stefan Harding says we are all born with an intrinsic understanding of Gaia. So it's, it's just our natural humanity to, to feel the earth as alive and as a mother. It's built into us. You could say, oh, that's good. That's natural selection. Those groups that felt the earth as a mother and treated her well survived. And those that didn't and treated her like, like we treat her didn't survive. Quite right. Natural selection in a way. Well, I don't know. I mean, I, you can imagine a scenario like that. Modernity is headed for an extinction because of the way we relate to you don't relate 
to Gaia with our aboriginality. We relate to her through our greed, you know, and our, our desire for more stuff and more money and more prestige and our competitive urges are just over-exaggerated. So that culture like that will be will go extinct. If modern humans don't change our ways to find harmony with the Earth, Gaia will do it for us. That's a classic Gaian feedback. We've pushed nature back. We've destroyed her to such an extent that there have to be very powerful feedbacks to control this species, the, the species of modernity. I won't say humans, because humans are wonderful. It's modernity that's the problem. I've come to that conclusion. Modernity, this modern way of life, it's a big problem. And it's evoking these feedbacks from Gaia. The coronavirus is just the start. I mean, if we don't do anything about greenhouse gases and the destruction of biodiversity, which help us control greenhouse gases, amongst other things, you know, we haven't got we haven't got much hope really. I mean, really, not in the long term. That's the science. Perhaps the most powerful observations of Gaia come from people who have seen the Earth from outer space, including retired NASA astronaut Ron Guerin, who flew in the shuttle and got to take a spacewalk. As the payload bay doors opened, uh, blue light was starting to to seep in through through the opening in in these in these massive payload bay doors. That was Earth shine, you know, reflected light from the Earth's surface. And as the payload base doors continued to open, eventually the horizon came into view. And when the horizon came into view, I was immediately thrust out of this, you know, disappointment of <laughs> just being in an aircraft, looking at the planet from high altitude to seeing a planet hanging in the blackness of space, a planet that all of the crewmates were no longer on. And so there was this feeling of detachment, like I was being, I was physically detached from the earth. And that that feeling of detachment, I think, was immediately followed by something I can't really fully explain um, to this day. But that detachment, I think, led to this feeling of a deep interconnection with everyone and everything on the planet. Uh, it, it was as if, for the first time in my life, I stepped outside the frame of the masterpiece. You know, looking at this beautiful, breathtaking planet turning, you know, 240 miles below us was was looking at a, at a masterpiece so looking at this this work of art this this beautiful thing um hanging in the blackness of space from the outside in and i had you know obviously never seen the earth from that vantage point and i i thought about that you know when we when we look at you know the grand when we go to the rim of the grand canyon look out over the grand canyon when we sit on a beach at sunset and look at a, a beautiful sunset, gravity is pushing us into that scene. We're inside the frame of the masterpiece. We're part of that, of that painting, if you will. Um, but for the first time in my life, I was seeing this exquisite beauty from the outside, and and somehow that outsider perspective, what I call the orbital perspective, uh, compelled me to feel deeply interconnected with everybody and everything on the planet. Ron Guerin says the name Gaia is fine, but he balks at the word hypothesis. I don't think it's a th hypothesis. <laughs> I think it's obvious. Uh, I, I, seeing the planet from the van that vantage point of space makes it obvious that we're looking at a living, breathing organism, um, a, a multi-celled organism, an organism that has different uh, you know, aspects of it b based on the various you know, multi-varied species of life that exist uh, upon the surface and below the surface of Earth and in the, in the atmosphere of Earth. And all of those um, different species, different indiv individual animals and plants are all part of uh, an implicit wholeness that is the planet itself. It's all not only interconnected, it's deeply, deeply interdependent. One doesn't have to go to outer space to feel Gaia. It can be as simple as taking a moment outdoors to be aware of the beauty around you and feel yourself drawn into the presence of the Earth. And by the way, some skeptics say Gaia doesn't qualify as a living being because things that are alive reproduce. Well, the simplest way organisms reproduce is by division. And some already envision a colony of humans and other Earth life forms on Mars. Indeed, Perseverance, the most recent NASA expedition to Mars, has an experimental machine called MOXIE that mimics photosynthesis to produce oxygen. 
So the gestation may be taking billions of years, but Gaia is in fact taking the steps to reproduce herself, which would truly make her Mother Earth. Support for Living on Earth comes from Sailors for the Sea and Oceana, helping boaters race clean, sail green, and protect the seas they love. More information at sailorsforthesea.org. These days, the world is experiencing a convergence of crises, and some argue that the greatest of them all is the climate crisis, and few of us really know what to do about it. Isn't it all just too big for any one of us? That's the focus of Outrage and Optimism, a lively weekly podcast from Global Optimism. On Outrage and Optimism, Cristiana Figueres, former UN climate chief, and her partners Tom Rivet-Karnak and Paul Dickinson set out to help us navigate the complexities of tackling climate change. They talk to business leaders, politicians, scientists, activists from around the world, and they ask the questions. What makes you feel outraged about climate change? And what is there to be optimistic about? Their inspirational conversations demand that we each take a deep breath and decide that together we can do this. So don't wait. Subscribe to Outrage and Optimism on Apple Podcasts, Spotify, or wherever you get your podcasts for new episodes every Thursday. We know you've been alarmed and exhausted by the social and political turmoil of the past year in the United States and all over the world. But hey... At the same time, there's been unprecedented mobilization to defend democracy, promote civil rights, and address the climate crisis. Are you feeling this same mix of anxiety and hope? Well, we wanted to let you know about a new podcast that is diving into all that and more, and helping listeners make sense of it all. It's called Democracy in Danger. Democracy in Danger is a show from the University of Virginia that translates deep knowledge into compelling stories and engaging interviews. Each week, Hosts Will Hitchcock and Shiva Vaidanathan unearth the threats facing democracy and ask what we can do about it. Visit dindanger.org for more. That's D-I-N-D-A-N-G-E-R dot O-R-G. And subscribe to Democracy in Danger on any podcast app. It's Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. The Gaia hypothesis is a fairly recent take on cosmology that science is coming to respect more and more. But many ancient societies and religious traditions have long shaped our values based on being a part of and not apart from the lives we share on this planet. My name is Diokazan Ghostors, and I'm from the Cheyenne River Lakota Reservation in South Dakota. When I was four, uh, my father had passed away, and I had spent the days in the summer along a, a small creek. It was very warm. The sun was coming down, it was about noon, and I was watching the water and the crows and woodpeckers play in the reflections. And I was sitting there, and I probably was thinking about my father, I don't remember, but I felt a little sad. I heard some crunching of rocks and on the ground. I looked behind me, and at a distance around the bend of a creek came an old man. And this old man I had never seen before, but he had raggedy leggings on, and moccasins, and they were leather. And he stood there, and I wasn't afraid of him for some reason, and he reached down and he grabbed some dirt, some earth, and he threw it out over the water, and it sprinkled, and you know how stones and pebbles hit the earth, there's small circles everywhere. He said, this is who you are, and I was amazed in, in that time construct of a young person, four years old, you were looking at all the the circles, and then you looked up, I looked up, and I didn't see him, and he was not there. That mystifying experience stuck with Tiokasen. Later, he came to understand better what it meant. So in life, I wanted to know what that magic to me was, and it was basically in water, and in the Lakota definition, mini is... The m means something like um, that which is related between you and I and all things. And ni is living or life. 
are and the E is is voicing. So voicing the living relationship between you and I and all things is what we call water, and water has consciousness. In the English language, we don't quite have the words to convey what he is saying. But essentially, to the Lakota, water is more than the physical substance we splash on our faces in the morning or use to slake our thirst. It is a way to define how we as individual people are connected to all of life. You heard it out of Standing Rock. They were saying water is life. Mini Bichoni, water is life. But in many ways, our current economic and political system lacks protection for our water and natural resources, which are essential for the health of the planet and humankind. And Native American beliefs like the seven generations principle are counter to the destructive tendencies in our current systems that value transactions, short-term gains, and efficiency over resiliency. Joe Bruchak is a writer and storyteller of the Nelhegan Abenaki Nation and sees this concept as a guideline for a better world. We must think in terms of seven generations. What will happen seven generations from now if I do this? And that goes way beyond ideas of investment, way beyond ideas of contemporary short-term politics. It becomes an investment in a future that is sustainable. That idea of seven generations is something central to my heart and to the hearts of most people who live a traditional Native way. People from other spiritual traditions are making similar connections. Rabbi Yonatan Naril, who directs the Interfaith Center for Sustainable Development in Jerusalem, is one. The ecological crisis is not a crisis of the birds and the bees or the trees and the toads. It's a crisis of how we live as spiritual beings in a physical reality. He says spiritual leaders who see the ecological crisis through this lens find faith and hope in a variety of sacred texts. Uh, the teachings in, whether in the Bible or the Quran or the Bhagavad Gita for Hindus, uh, all, all sacred texts contain deep teachings about ecological sustainability. For one, the, the great spiritual masters of previous generations were living much closer to nature than the average human being is today. And today's spiritual leaders are seeing that distance from nature and the climate emergency and calling their congregants to act. Pope Francis wrote Laudato Si, the encyclical on climate change in 2015, which is a call for Catholics and non-Catholics alike to undergo an ecological conversion and care for our common home. He writes, quote, Our planet is a mother for all of us. We must hand it on to our children, cared for and improved, because it's a loan they make to us. Pope Francis is famous for living simply in the Vatican and traveling in a small, unostentatious vehicle, the Kia Soul. Christiana Papard is a professor of theology at Fordham University and sees Laudato Si in the canon of the followers of St. Francis of Assisi, who dedicated his life to the poor, the animals, and the environment. I think the Pope sees a lot of the dynamics of environmental degradation globally as driven by economic structures of profit and a focus on economic development and growth that is not accountable to the limitations of what the planet can absorb, and it is not accountable to the burdens that are carried by people living in poverty. Like Pope Francis, Father Albert Fritsch is a Jesuit priest who was trained in chemistry. The Pope earned a master's degree in chemistry, and Father Albert a Ph.D. in chemistry before either were ordained. Father Albert went on to co-found the Center for Science and the Public Interest in Washington, and a related organization in Appalachia, where he is now a parish priest and director of the website Earth Healing. There's a very personal element to his environmental work. Asked if he had ever felt Jesus Christ speak directly to him, he told the story of visiting the Church of the Holy Sepulchre in Jerusalem, which houses the rock where the body of Jesus was laid after he was taken down from the cross. There's a hole in the display case covering the rock. And so I reached into the hole, and when I did, it was a voice came saying, look what they've done to my earth. And it came as clearly as anything I've ever heard in my life. And so when you asked me, what would Christ say? I said, I heard the voice of Christ. And it said it was tremendous sorrow uh, and uh, difficulty because he thought things so much of his earth. Look what they've done to my earth. It changed my life. I never, I wasn't the same after that. 
but I feel that Christ was telling me that the uh, earth itself has been damaged and that it hurts him very badly. From then on, Father Albert devoted his work to caring for the environment. Islam also has much to say about ecology. Nearly almost every page, I think seven, eight times out of ten, you, you turn the Quran randomly and you'll get a, a sentence, a, a verse or a reference to the clouds, the sky, the birds, the bees, the trees, uh, and creation, and, and, and so on and so on. Professor Fazlin Khalid is a theologian and founder-director of the Islamic Foundation for Ecology and Environmental Science. So the Quran, I would say, is an environmental manual. You see, when the Quran talks about you see, the najm and the shajr, the plants and the trees bow in adoration to Allah. And Allah says, then I created mizan, Allah tatakafil mizan. You see, I created the world in balance. In fact, this idea is at the very heart of some East Asian ways of thought. Mary Evelyn Tucker is the co-founder and co-director of the Yale Forum on Religion and Ecology. Confucianism has a very rich cosmology of continuity of being, of interdependence, and it's very specific of cosmos, earth, and human. That's their trinity. That's their triad. We humans complete the triad of cosmos and earth, uh, and we are co-creators with what they speak of as the transforming and nourishing powers of heaven and earth. Mary Evelyn Tucker explains that Lao Tzu is the progenitor of Taoism with its values that include simplicity, humility, and living in harmony. Lao Tzu would say, we have to go with the flow. We've got to understand the power of water to carve out the Grand Canyon. We've got to understand um, that which is passive, hidden, dark, mysterious, and yet generative of life and transformation. This is an extraordinary contribution to human thinking, nature's ways. So from Lao Tzu and Taoism, we have this idea of resonance with nature. Confucianism takes that a step further. There's a practical dimension to Confucianism. It says that's necessary but not sufficient, going with the flow, because we also have to recognize human agency is critical. And if we don't align ourselves with these processes to create political systems, educational systems, and social systems for the common good, it will just be a personal transformation that will feel good. What we choose to do or fail to do affects everyone around us. Rabbi Yonatan Nuril speaks about self-interest and the climate. So there's a teaching from Rabbi Shimon Bar Yochai, who lived about 2,000 years ago in, in the north of Israel in, under, during Roman times. And he talks about somebody who goes onto a ship and starts drilling underneath his or her own seat. And the other people on the ship say to the person, well, what are you doing? How, could, how can you drill underneath your own seat? And the person says, well, I'm doing whatever I want because here's my ticket and this is my seat and I can do whatever I want. And the other people say to that person, well, no, you can't because what you're doing impacts us. So I think that this teaching has relevance for the climate crisis because each human being today, or, or most people, most of the 8 billion people alive today, are drilling underneath the collective ship of, of planet Earth. Um, and similarly, on that ship, this person may not have been psychotic or crazy. This person may have just been trying to fish because they were hungry or get some fresh water because they were thirsty or put their feet in, on, in the water because their feet were hot. The person may have been rational. And so too, each of us is acting rationally. But, but collectively, what we're doing is crazy because we want the next generation to inherit a livable planet. But if we, if we act with more spiritual awareness and engage in long-term thinking and care about other people and creatures, then we will actually be able to have a ship that is sustainable and seaworthy and, and can continue for many generations. Stories from ancient traditions highlight this very idea that we are not alone on the earth and our actions transcend through time. When Native American Joe Bruchak visited the jungles of the Mexican state of Chiapas, he spoke with Chan King Viejo, an elder of the Lacandon Mayan people. Chan King said, and I love this, though it's scary. He said, first of all, 
Every time you cut a great tree in the forest, a star falls from the sky. So before you cut a tree, you must ask the guardian of the tree, the guardian of the star, if what you are doing is correct. And he said, if we cut down all the trees of the forest, then the gods of diseases will come out of the forest and come among the people. He also said, if we cut all the trees, a great darkness will come upon the world. And in that darkness, you will hear the growl of the jaguar, and you will be afraid. And so if we do not maintain that balance, we're going to be hearing or experiencing that jaguar's growl, that great darkness. So to me, uh, having traveled some of the world, having met some of the people whose indigenous traditions, I found so meaningful and similar to my own, I have to say that we all live on the same earth, that our original teachings are very much the same if we look to the relationship of us with our mother planet. It's not easy to think that long term, and we sometimes fall into the trap of thinking we can engineer our way out of our problems and into the future. That's only a part of it. As we conclude, here are some voices, starting with Mary Evelyn Tucker. We've got a lot of the science and technology and economics and policy, but we don't necessarily have this deep inner spiritual uh, sensibility that we can make it <laughs> through this bottleneck of extinction and climate uh, emergency and so on. So the human spirit needs care <laughs> and activation on every level, I think. Over the past 12 years, I've been involved in interfaith environmental work, and I have the privilege of working with amazing people, uh, priests, pastors, imams, swamis, monks, who care deeply about ecological sustainability and are approaching it from their different religious traditions. So, you know, it's a commonality. It's, and, that, and that's, you know, if we're on, a, we're on this ship together— and, and so the most important thing is that we learn to live here sustainably together. That was Rabbi Nouril. And finally, Mampele Rampele is a South African physician, activist, and widow of Steve Biko. She says our gifts of today are bright possibilities. And so we now have an opportunity to reimagine a world where we see ourselves as part of nature. We are not saving nature. Nature will save itself. We have to save ourselves from this existential crisis by changing fundamentally the way we live, how we relate to one another, and how we relate to the rest of life. And that's the opportunity we have. Living on Earth is produced by the World Media Foundation. Our crew includes Naomi Ehrenberg, Bobby Bascom, Coloma Beltran, Grace Callahan, Jenny Doring, Jay Feinstein, Paige Greenfield, Mark Seth Lender, Don Lyman, Ainsley O'Neill, Natalie So, and Yolanda Omari. Jake Rigo engineered our show. Allison Learstein composed our themes. You can hear us anytime at LOE.org, Apple Podcasts, and Google Podcasts. And like us, please, on our Facebook page, Living on Earth. I'm Steve Kerwood. Thanks for listening. Funding for Living on Earth comes from you, our listeners, and from the University of Massachusetts, Boston, in association with its School for the Environment, developing the next generation of environmental leaders, and from the Grantham Foundation for the Protection of the Environment, supporting strategic communications and collaboration in solving the world's most pressing environmental problems.